Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Live from the Mount edition. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2016. On today's show, it was only 10 years ago that Mike Judge's movie Idiocracy seemed like the most outlandish of satires. It takes place in a world in which our leaders are panicky ding-dongs, anti-intellectualism predominates, and every feature of our civic life has been sold out to corporate interests. Any guesses why we're discussing it tonight? (laughs) And then we are absolutely delighted to be at the Mount tonight, uh, maybe the least idiocratic place in our entire country, with the exception, of course, of Dana's Gamelon room. That was my big joke for the night, people. (laughs) Um, On the occasion of visiting Edith Wharton's estate, we'll ask, why do people take pilgrimages to the homes of their most revered writers and artists? We are delighted to discuss this subject with author and Mount co-savior Kate Bullock. And finally, what is it with all the cutesy interfaces? Why is technology trying so hard to infantilize us? Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dane. Nah. Steven. Stevens, yeah. We can, that's cute. We can say Steven together. Um, <laughs> um, so, Julia, before we dig in, do we have, uh, do we have business? Uh, well, first of all, we're in this very intimate stable. We are at the Mount, but we should clarify we had cocktails at the Mount, the classy manner of Edith Wharton. Uh, and now we are in Edith Wharton's August Historical Stable. So we are in the, the Mount Stable. One thing I wanted to shout out specifically, which may be, may be inappropriate, but I don't think so. I met someone at the cocktail hour who said she just finished a massive medical school milestone, possibly med- medical school entirely, uh, and then drove straight here from New Orleans, purchasing an amazing vintage dress on the way. <laughs> and this is her celebration. She's there in the back row. Congratulations. your name again? Jessa. Jessa. All right, so congratulations, Jessa, for completing your medical school milestone. You can tell us more about what it was on the hike tomorrow. All right, that's my business. Proceed. All right, let's do this. Idiocracy is the 2006 satirical feature film directed by Mike Judge. It stars Luke Wilson as the, quote, most average person in the entire armed forces. He's a U.S. Army librarian who, as part of a secret program, is placed into suspended animation where he is supposed to stay for only one year, but thanks to a series of mishaps, he wakes up 500 years later, only to discover an America gone completely to seed, uh, so much to seed that he's the most intelligent person alive. The people are de-skilled zombies, the government is a reality TV circus, the economy has collapsed in no small part because a mega corporation has replaced water with a Gatorade-like substance. 
and they're using it on the crops. Har har. Um, the film co-stars Maya Rudolph as a prostitute who accompanies Wilson into the future. Why don't we listen to a clip? Julia, do you want to set it up for me? So the one of the writers, not Mike Judge, but Ethan Cohen, who wrote the movie with Judge. Not of Ethan and Joel Cohen, but a guy, separate guy, Ethan Different Cohen. Cohen uh, with an H tweeted earlier this year, I didn't realize Idiocracy would turn out to be a documentary or something to that effect, <laughs> which then spawned a number of articles uh, pointing out that a reality show star now seeks to be our president. And so we thought we'd screen a clip where the president in 2500-odd, whenever this exactly takes place, whose name is President Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, <laughs> Wonderfully by Terry Crews, expresses something about his governance plans to his populace. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of America! Shut up! Shut up! Sit your monkey ass down. Chill out. I know shit's bad right now, with all that starving bullshit and the dust storms and we running out of french fries and burrito coverings. Yeah. But I got a solution. That's what you said last time, dipshit. I got a solution. You're a dick. South Carolina, what's up? (laughs) That's what I thought. Now, I understand everyone's shit's emotional right now, but listen up. I got a three-point plan to fix everything. Bring it down, Number one, we got this guy not sure. Number two, he's got a higher IQ than any man alive. And number three, he's gonna fix everything. I give you my word as president. You fix the problems with all the dead crap. He's going to make them grow again. And that ain't all. I give you my word. He's going to fix the dust on the I give you my word. He's going to fix that comedy. He's so smart. He's going to do it all in one President Camacho stood before the world and promised everyone that Joe would solve all their problems. He would not only end the Dust Bowl and heal the economy, but he would cure acne and car sickness as well. And if he didn't, President Camacho made another promise. He would kick Joe's smart balls all the way up to the roof of his smart mouth, and then he would throw his brainy ass back in jail. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about Mike Judge. We don't have to linger over this as a work of cinema, and obviously the meat of our conversation is Mike Judge thought this had to be placed 500 years in the future when it only needed to be placed 10. ten. <laughs> but let's start with a little bit about uh, Mike Judge, uh, creator of Beavis and Butthead. Um, yeah, I'm sort of curious before we get into that, how many people have seen Idiocracy, either when it came out or since then? Applaud if you've seen the movie. Yeah. I mean, one thing about Idiocracy that was a real shame when it came out is that it was completely buried by the studio. And it, it, was, it was a real mystery why it was treated in that way. So it bombed at the box office, but in part that was because it had no marketing campaign. It sort of had no word of mouth. It was a movie that became a cult movie that picked up 
speed later on when people started to be able to see it at home and pass the word around about it. So now I feel like it, it occupies, like Office Space, Mike Judge's first movie, or maybe Beavis and Butthead Do America was his first movie. <laughs> <laughs> but like Office Space, it occupies that cult sweet spot where you can quote lines from it. You know, it sort of has become a part of the American consciousness in, in that way. Rondo, it's got electrolytes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you really hear the word electrolytes in any context without remembering Brando? I know I can't. Um, if it's possible to bracket our consciousness of Donald Trump for a second and go back to what Mike Judge was doing when he made this movie, right? And what, what part of what he's doing is he's connecting the baleful dots uh, in, of 2006 and projecting them off into the future and saying, you know, something about what happens if the civic norms of life fall to the same level that the norms of pop, the same sort of lowest common denominator of popular culture. Um, can you think about that in those terms before we bring in the dread name. Yeah. Well, you mean, you mean like what that extrapolation would have meant in its, in its own time. Right. I mean, it, it had to have seemed somewhat plausible or else the satire had no traction and it had to seem completely freaking outlandish or it wouldn't have been crazy and funny. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine then that the figures that were inspiring him, of course, Trump was around doing his thing, not in politics, but in reality TV and, and everything at the time. I mean, I would think that he was probably thinking of Hulk Hogan and Arnold Schwarzenegger and other figures who had come from, from outside politics to, to infiltrate it. But it, in a way, it seems like the idiocracy itself is this extrapolation of the always extrapolative logic of Mike Judge, right? Beavis and Butthead is, in a way, the same type of story. It's kind of taking, taking the image of these two dumb guys who know nothing and turning them into sort of philosophers, right? Turning them into these, these world historical philosophers, like the world is reduced down to that level of, of stupidity. And office space, too, kind of taking the absurdity of corporate life life in the in the Dilbert world and, and extrapolating that as far and as absurd as it can go. All right, Julia, the time has come to drag in the horrible name that I think several months ago we promised or Dana vowed she would never, ever speak of ever again. <laughs> can I just but... look back with nostalgia on that show last summer when I, I didn't even want to do Donald Trump because I thought no one's going to be talking about this in two weeks. It's so old. It's so over. <laughs> oh, man, those were the days. Such, in, such innocence. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me, so I saw this movie not when it came out in theaters, but probably, you know, rented it or what, I probably put a VCR into a square receptacle or something in 2007 and thought it was funny, liked it a lot, thought it seemed um, cathartic to watch in the in the last years of the Bush era, right, when you felt that you felt very alienated from, or you, I don't know how you felt. Uh, if you were a person who felt that Bush was not a good president and had made a number of serious governing mistakes and you could not understand how you could be a fellow country man or woman with people who believed him to be a good president who should continue to rule, um, it, it was cathartic, I think, to watch this and be like, look, if, if things continue in the direction of the people who have put in charge the person who's in charge now, that will be a disaster, a, a very comedic, dark, cynical disaster. Um, I did not experience the same kind of catharsis rewatching this last night, even though uh, Trump makes George W. Bush look like a delightful uh, and, um, you know, statesman-like statesman -like <laughs> figure, yeah. Um, but uh, this movie struck me as like a, a, a shocking flashpoint of how far we've come culturally in the last 10 years. It seems 
really mean-spirited and really conservative in in a certain way because what it seems to suggest is that poor people are stupid and that's their fault and they're reproducing at a greater uh, rate than rich ninnies who are smart and thus poor stupid people will take over the world and won't that be hilarious and I found it to be deeply mean-spirited and and kind of conservative and awful in its politics when I watched it again one person agrees with me. <laughs> um, and I, not in a way that made it bad to see or not interesting as a like figment of its own moment, but it made me think about what it's like to contemplate a Trump presidency after eight years of Obama, which encourages me to think like, yeah, there are a lot of forces that are making, uh, you know, Trump's message resonate for people who feel really frustrated and feel like, you know, feel like their world is... Uh, being nourished with the poison of Brando, like, you know, that they, um, but there's no sense of like, there is a set of structural or systemic forces that make the lives of the people who find Trump appealing miserable. And the tragic irony of Trump's candidacy is that he seems very unlikely to be able to do anything that would make their lives better. Mm -hmm. And I found no catharsis for the Trump moment in watching this film. I didn't find it either. I, 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 the eugenic, thing is hits you right up front and then it's not per, I mean it's implied throughout the movie but it's not really pursued but it's bracingly weird and inappropriate and unpleasant and it turned me against the movie early on that said I drew two conclusions from it one is that correct me if I'm wrong it seems to me that the anxiety even since 2006 has shifted and it's then it was kind of a leftover anxiety from as early as the 1970s about the lowest common denominator predominating via television. So there was something about the common... The television had this force to degrade our common culture and enslave everybody to creating, you know, telegenic images. Um, And in the 10 years since, I think it's much more about not the common culture and the low level of the common culture, but how salamied up into little niches we are on the internet so that people can find their own truth. They can find their own narcissistic ideological mirror and look in it and and find themselves affirmed as a supporter of Trump. So in that sense, it didn't grab me. But it's all one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I did come up with a little theory. Do you want to hear my theory? I do. I'm like, want to marvel at your original observation, which strikes me as No, 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 we're done with that. That that train left the station. Let's move right along. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to hear my theory? Absolutely. Well, look like you do. Just kidding. So it, so it occurred to me that, okay, so civic norms are fragile, right? Once someone decides to break them and revel in breaking them, you don't know where it's going to stop. What I thought was interesting is that a crowd of people can be two things. It can be a, a mob or an audience, and it's not clear going in which it's going to be. And a mob is the stupidest thing a group of people can be. And an audience is the smartest thing a group of people can be. There's an amazing David Mamet pian kind of hymn to the intelligence of an, the collective intelligence of an audience as it responds to a work of dramatic art or a film. And what he says is they are absolutely omniscient. They know exactly what's true. They know exactly what's false. And they know exactly what is funny and what isn't. And they tell you and you always have to, as a dramatist, obey it and, and heed it. And it just seems to me, as down as I am about Donald Trump, it does make me think any mob can be turned back into an audience. This movie does? No, 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 no. What's the it in I, that I, sense? I, what, what movie? I forgot. <laughs> 
Wait, we're, we're talking about a movie? What? <laughs> Wait, why do you have that hope? Oh, fuck. <laughs> my fucking quarrels all over again. Why do I have that hope? I have that hope because I don't think it's an intrinsic fact of any group of people that their mob impulse will, will um, win out over their impulse to react um, intelligently and empathetically. It depends on what you present them. Yeah, I guess. I, 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 I'm stuck on trying to think if there's another thing a group of people can be, like a rugby scrum. Or <laughs> a flash mob. <laughs> like a dance, like a... Anyway, the Rockettes. But um, I, I want to go back to your earlier observation, which I think is so interesting. Like the, This is about a crisis of the monoculture dominating. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and if you were to make an idiocracy today that posits the horrible thing that will happen 500 years from now, that will actually only happen 10 years from now, it would be a different horrible thing. Or maybe Trump is the horrible thing of the specific moment we're in. I guess that's what you're saying, of people kind of defining their own truth and finding their own pockets. I had a conversation yesterday with a Trump voter and stipulated this is like the Tom Friedman horrible thing where you like meet a person in New York City from whom you are purchasing a service and then you ask them about their political beliefs and then you extrapolate and draw conclusions. But I, I met... <laughs> A Trump voter in New York City yesterday, um, and and uh, you know was just like boggled. She had her own whole set of facts that were not incorrect facts. She just was paying attention to different facts than I was paying attention to. But she was like a, you know, a black Trinidadian immigrant who was just not having it with Hillary. Thought Trump could and felt like no one she knew could get a job, and Trump seemed to agree that the country had gone to shit and was promising to fix it. And she, like. The, the, I was like, oh, you really, you do not live on the internet that I live on. Uh, you do not live right. in, in the, with the set of facts that I live with. And that seems to me really pertinent to the moment. Well, and that's something that the movie doesn't, strangely doesn't foresee is the rise and the importance of social media. I mean, didn't Facebook start around the same time, 2006, a couple of years before? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's one way in which this movie isn't so prescient, is that it doesn't foresee that, that nichification of culture and the way that people create a bubble in which they see only their own beliefs. I mean, I almost would, would imagine, well, a movie, another movie that came out in 2006 about a kind of uh, eugenic dystopia was Children of Men, an Alfonso Cuaron movie. And uh, the, the kind of dystopic future that, that you could imagine projecting from our current you know, embeddedness in our own internet bubbles there's a very strong image for that in Children of Men. If you remember, there's a scene where the son, the kind of teenage son of this, this high-up diplomat who's played by Danny Houston, comes into the room as, as um, Clive Owen and Danny Houston are discussing you know, this problem of like, why is, is humankind not reproducing anymore? And uh, this teenage boy comes in and he's completely wired into a helmet with wi- like wires sticking out of all his fingers and he's making these strange motions. And you think at first that he's sort of a zombie or a monster or something, and you realize he's playing a game. You know, he's in some sort of futuristic alternate virtual reality that he's, he's enclosed within, you know, and that seems like a more powerful projecting 500 or 10 years into the image, into the future for me. Yeah, yeah. All right, as we segue out of this um, segment, uh, we should acknowledge that there probably is no greater gap between sensibilities as that between the creator of the drawing room tragedy of manners, Edith Wharton, and the creator of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> And I think we they should. They both ce- happen in, in living rooms. <laughs> I think we should celebrate that with a joke. <laughs> he, he said, Mount. <laughs> oh, all right. The movie. <laughs> all right. Fail. All right. Uh, 
the movie is called Idiocracy. It's 10 years old, uh, but this discussion is fresh as a freaking daisy. Um, check it out online. We're very curious to know whether you found it trenchant or meaningless at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. Kate Bolick is the acclaimed author of the New York Times bestseller, Spinster, Making a Life of One's Own. The book was also, I should say, a Times Notable Book of the Year. Um, she was executive editor for Domino Magazine. She's been a columnist for the uh, Boston Globe's Idea section. She is a contributor to The Atlantic and our very own Slate Magazine. Uh, and I should say she was instrumental in helping decide the now happy fate of the mount, as I understand it. We'd love to hear more of that. We are absolutely chuffed to be joined uh, for this next segment by Kate Bullock. Kate, come on up. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be part of your podcast. This is a wonderful first, and I should say, Julia, take it away. It's actually a big night for Kate and Slate Magazine, right? Uh, yeah. We just brokered a great deal on the porch of the Mount. Kate told me she's been calling herself Slate's unofficial Mount correspondent, and I was like, let's make it official. So, <laughs> Kate's our newly minted... Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Actually, Edith Wharton correspondent. Thank I think you. we agreed on the title. Um, because Kate wrote a piece for us when the Mount was facing economic woes in 2008, I think, which has led me to claim many times that Slate saved the Mount. Kate can tell you whether that's actually true. Well, and, and, I, and then I wrote another piece, I think, last year about Wharton's entertaining methods. So that's, that's what gave me correspondence status yeah. in my own mind, was the two things. But yeah, so on, on the topic of literary pilgrimages, or art, pilgrimages to, to artists' houses and writers' houses, uh, when I first came to the Mount in 2008, it was really less of a pilgrimage and more of an emergency rescue mission because the, the Mount was at risk of foreclosure. And when I learned this, I thought, oh my God, I've never seen the inside of the Mount. And I know it's supposed to be beautiful, but, but not only that, Wharton is, uh, her architectural ideas and principles, right, you know, set forth right here. I see we have the book, The Decoration of Houses, which she came out in, in, in 1897. Um, the, the mount is considered what's called an autobiographical house uh, because it's, you know, she designed it, you know, studs to roof with her architecture and decorating principles in mind. And, and so it's an architectural treasure as well as the home of a writer. So I wanted to come see it. I love that concept of the autobiographical that house. Right? That's wonderful. There, Thomas Hardy was an architect who designed his own house, I, I believe. I did not know that. And I think of Wittgenstein. Whoa. 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 And then Jung, I just made that he's up. another... No, they, they did. Um, uh, that's fantastic. Talk a little bit about, um, just a give us a little background on what this house meant to Wharton and uh, what works she wrote here, and then especially about what ghosts you find lurking in it, um, you know, yeah. as a fan of Wharton's. Well, she she started building it and moved in I think she started building it in 1900 and then moved in in 1902. Mount people, you can correct me if I have those dates wrong. And she was 40 at the time. And she had been publishing a lot, but she wasn't yet the Edith Wharton we all know and love. So The House of Mirth came out in 1905, I believe, and that was her breakout book. So she, she wrote that at the Mount. And she famously wrote in bed uh, before lunch and would, you know, toss her sheets of paper on the floor and then and later her lady maid, whatever that's called, would collect them off the floor and type them up for her. 
and, and it was while she was out, you know, so not only did she design this exactly the way that she wanted it to be, oh wait, and I will pull back and say a little bit more about that, which is that, you know, she, she grew up in very wealthy New York and the, the way to summer and, and so, you know, entertain, everybody went to Newport and, and lived in these enormous houses and the, the kind of entertaining of that time period was so, to her, stultifying, just about changing your clothes four times a day for each event and lots of insipid small talk all day long. And so for her, the mount, although to us or to me, it looks very grand, it was you know, a real step down in a way of, of making something more intimate so that she could entertain and socialize on her own terms. So it's, it's important for that. I hadn't thought about it, but at the turn of the last century, it was an unusual choice maybe to not be in Newport or one of a few other oh, places. Oh yeah, this, this was really avant-garde. Yeah. Um, any ghosts? Have you run into any uh, phantasms of your imagination or okay, hers? Listen, or? I have not read into, run into any ghosts, but when I did that slate rescue mission and with a photographer and she took pictures, I did... So we spent a Saturday here and, and the photographer shot the whole place and I at one point took a nap on the sofa and I drooled a little bit. <laughs> It's not Wharton's actual original sofa, but that felt very cool and very intimate. And then a couple of years later, the Mount now hosts a writer's residency, and I was um, the first year of that. So I spent a week in January uh, staying at the Blantyre, which is you know, Downton, Downton Abbey stateside, is how I think of the Blantyre. And it's total Gilded Age, Wharton-era living. So I, I lived there by night, and then by day, roamed around the mount with my laptop, and took more naps, and read and wrote. And I, was, I have a chapter on Wharton in my book, Spinster. And, and doing that, to, to really live inside of the house for a good part of the day, in the dead of winter, you know, just snow everywhere, it was freezing, I was wearing a hat and scarf the whole time, I mean, there is heat, but it was, um, I really got a, a much different feel for her, it was really important for me in the writing of that. Right, well, that, that leads beautifully into, I think, where we want to go with this next, which is, what does, why does one go, and what does one discover when one makes such a pilgrimage? Julia, where have you gone in order to commune with someone you really truly admire it's interesting i i wouldn't pilgrimage is not the right word for the houses of the artists that i visited i've gone to visit the houses of artists in places where i already happen to be so i came to the mount uh probably 10 years ago with my family and my mother wrote about design and i'm interested in design and i learned more coming on that trip about how interested it, it, Warden was in design and the fact that this house and its principles were not just like a fancy house, which is what it reads as now. You're like, oh, it's a fancy old house. Um, but that actually was sort of a radical new way to make a still pretty fancy house for a rich lady um, at the time and, you know, was interested in that intellectually. But the other places I've been are totally random, like uh, out in Long Island, Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner, the house where he developed his style, which has a little cabin that's still got the spatters, the totemic <laughs> spatters are on the floor where he spattered his spattering. Um, and they have just like a hope, hopelessly cool sort of bohemian kitchen of mismatched rickety chairs. And you just kind of imagine all of the like fabulous conversations and spattering that were happening. Um, and the, and the light there feels very special. It's sort of on a little peninsular spit in a marsh and has that, that warm marsh light. And you just think, well, if I lived here, I would be a fantastic artist too. You know, you have that sense of like, 
um, what does it take to create a creative life? Like mm-hmm. what are the undergirdings or underpinnings of a life that can produce art that connects to you? Um, and I like Pollock, but he's not like my guy, you know? And then I went to Cuba with my husband last year and we were like, don't take us to Hemingway's house. Like I've sort of have a, have the, the, uh, callow feminists snobbery about Hemingway of like, eh, whatever dude. Um, but the guide we were with was like, ah, uh, you'd like, you're in Cuba. Like, let's get, come on lady. Uh, and I loved it. He has this house that, that he built, um, it, in what was then sort of the countryside outside of Havana. And now it's, you know, just sort of the Southern outskirts of the city, uh, up on a hilltop with these incredible gardens and groves. And the whole house somewhat surprisingly to me is built around hospitality. Like the, the, the lore of the place, who knows if it's true, is that the table was always set with an extra place, and the whole idea was that they, the Hemingway and his family would kind of welcome stragglers and people in all the time. Um, and I came away from it feeling uh, like I needed to reconsider Hemingway. I was like, anyone who lived in mm. such a human space is is someone that I should not have written off so moronically. And I bought and read The Old Man in the Sea afterwards and, and found a different way into the work, having seen the humanity of his space mm-hmm. in a way that feels... Um, I, I don't know what it is about seeing people's spaces and objects that that feels like it gives you a way into their brains but it, yeah. but it does absolutely did you drool on anything or no no i think it, i caressed, left it like you found it i yeah. think i think i caressed the boat that counts maybe yeah that's yeah. close all right dana what is it work it out for me what is it about going to a writer's house or hut or wherever what what connects that you know, passionate inwardness that made the work to the banal outwardness of the circumstances in in your mind when you do. Well, where have you gone? Right. Yeah. And what did you learn when you went? I there? mean, I think I think in a way the melancholy of visiting a place like that right. is that is that you, you can never quite make that connection. It's sort of like reading a biography of an artist that you admire, right? You can learn everything. You can read some immense, you know, Robert Moses length biography that tells every minute of every recorded thing they did in their life, and you can still close that book feeling like, but but where did the work come from? You know, yeah. you can still just feel like you didn't quite get it, and that maybe is part of the passion that keeps people, keeps people going on those pilgrimages. I, I mean, it's a good time to ask me this question because I just went on one, not to a house specifically, but I went to Los Angeles to research this book I'm working on, on Buster Keaton. And, uh, and the reason that I was going was not really that clear to me. I mean, it had to do with primary sources and some books that I wanted to see at the Academy Library. But those books were completely digitized and can be seen online for free. But it was really important to me to, um, t- to see the actual mm-hmm. document. What the book was, this is stepping back a little bit from houses, but it has to do with that aura of, of primary yeah. sources and what they have. What the book was, was this scrapbook that his mother, Myra Keaton, kept of their vaudeville act, the Three Keatons, because you know, if you know anything about Buster Keaton, that he grew up, he was a huge star as a child in vaudeville before he ever got into films. And when you read biography, film, history, things about Buster Keaton, you'll always see this mentioned, oh, page 28, Myra Keaton's scrapbook, as if it's just another source. And over the years reading these things, I just started to get more and more curious, like, what is this scrapbook? I want to see it. I want to touch it. You know, what did it look like? And, uh, and so I essentially went all the way to Los Angeles to see a book that you can see online anyway, and it was completely worth it. I mean, the experience mm-hmm. of actually seeing it, it's so old and precious, this document, that you have to sit in a room with a conservator who turns the pages for you. And, uh, 
And it was so much richer than I expected. It, there was no feeling at all of, well, I could have gotten that information online, but it's sort of nicely mm -hmm. sentimental to see it. There was an actual sense that, you know, um, that knowledge and wisdom and history and love and all of these things were contained in that document in a way that, that couldn't come across in that's a photograph. Lovely. No, that's beautifully put. I, I had a somewhat similar experience. I was writing about uh, the painter Jean-Michel Basquiat, and there was a small, very small art gallery in Harlem had an exhibit of his notebooks that I think now have traveled a little more far and wide. But um, And I was kind of on the fence of, about whether I would go, and I, I did. And there was almost no artwork in it. It's, it's sort of almost almost automatic writing or very free associate. Oh, you mean that notebook show at the Brooklyn yeah. Museum? Yeah. Oh, so yeah, yeah, that, I thought it may, may have gone to the Brooklyn Museum. But you, you definitely, there was something about seeing the actual notebook and the actual handwriting. And you bring this huge train of imaginative associations to these names and they don't, they made what they made out of the stuff of life and it's just reminding yourself that they were embodied people. They weren't these great hovering, you know, Macy's Day Parade names, proper names, but yeah, Kate. Yeah, am I allowed to jump in? With jump? Thought? Yeah. Oh, please. Well, yeah, I mean, what, what Julia was talking about, how it made, seeing Hemingway's house made you reconsider Hemingway. And I definitely had that experience with Wharton, that before visiting her house, I just thought of her as this famous novelist on in the top of Mount Olympus. Yeah. She wasn't a human to me, but to be in her space, I could feel her humanity in a different way. And same with uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay's house, Steepletop, which is nearby. And in what you, you know, her, the legend of Edna St. Vincent Millay is that she was, you know, f free love, the sexiest lady poet of the early 1900s and so forth. And, um, but she was also a very domestic, family-oriented person. And so to be in her house looking at her china, you know, with little roses and gold edges and... Uh, so so you, you feel the domesticity of her and the attentiveness she took to her home. And then you also, you go outside and she's got these, they had like seven pleasure gardens, she and her husband. And half of them were, the, the rule was clothes here. And then the other half was no clothes. And so, mm -hmm. um, so you, you also got to feel her, her real like zest for life, like running around nude with her friends when they came up. <laughs> Very different than Edith Wharton's style entertaining. It's funny though. So the aura thing applies also to works of physical art. Like, you know, part of why you go to the painting, the museum to see the specific painting, to stand in front of the actual Mona Lisa or whatever it is, is to think like, man, like, that amazing mind and talent plus this thing that selfie I, that I <laughs> plus selfie if you're Steve um, you know the, ob the object you have when you're working with, with a physical artist obviously with, with a writer the thing they're creating is more ephemeral but there's something about not just being in the presence of the object of art or the object of memory but in the in the like leavings of their mundane existence that feels revealing even though I generally believe you should kind of take the art as the art and the biography is interesting to mm -hmm. know but you should be able to yeah. consider the object as the object and I think the the one thing I like about it is that the spaces feel um, they're not consciously for posterity in the way of like a memoir or a diary or even letters sometimes it feels like you can hear people writing for more than intimacies in historical letters. You, you feel like there's a broader projected audience. Um, and the other thing is, and we talked about this when we had our show about adverbs a couple weeks ago, but I really do think of writing and editing as being a host of a kind, like you're creating an experience 
for the reader of the thing you were writing or producing. And I think any, any creative endeavor in some ways is like being a host. So there is an interesting metaphor in how people create a space and whether it's Mm -hmm. a welcoming one or a self-absorbed one or uh, that seems like an illuminating metaphor to me and not just to like, I can't believe they had that kind of salt shaker type experience. Yeah, a a real lesson for that uh, for me was going to Frida Kahlo's house, which was not a pilgrimage. It was just, I happened to be in Mexico City and so I went. And being there, I, it was the first time I really understood how much pain she was in all the time. And the reason I could understand it was because she arranged her house so that she was always looking at something pleasing or beautiful. And so you understood how she was trapped, you know, either in her wheelchair or in her, I for, you know, her brace on her bed. But you know, on her bed, she's lying on her bed and the ceiling is decorated with things. Or she sits in a chair and she's looking out in a specific garden. And so it, yeah, brought home that pain. That's fantastic. Now, I, has anyone ever been to a home that diminished your feelings for the person... <laughs> I hate to bring the room down, but I had that happen once in the, I was in the Lake District of uh, England, I think it's called, and um, I went to Ruskin's house, and wasn't, wasn't it in the Mike Lee Turner movie that Ruskin is portrayed as a prig, absolute yeah. prig and a self-centered fop and whatever, and I kind of worshipped Ruskin in part because he articulated as beautifully as anybody that theory that nothing in your home should be neither useful nor beautiful, it should be one or the other. And you go to his home, and you and and I did walk away thinking, easy for you to say, buddy. Like you suddenly got the sense that he grew up kind of pampered, uh, socially isolated, and in this supremely beautiful area that he basically inherited, I, I believe. And he developed a theory that, in his mind, ought to have applied to all of humanity, which was totally specific to his social circumstances. Do you ever? Is there? Do you ever, Kate? Be honest. Is there ever? Is there ever a tiny bit of inner Edith Wharton backlash <laughs> in your in Actually, your no. And, and I've yeah. become more of a fangirl over time since I now host this interview series here each summer. And now I get to like sort of pretend that it's my house and that I'm Edith Wharton for an evening. So I've really... <laughs> Gone all in. <laughs> that, that, Kate, that just reminds me of some at the Academy Library where I went to see that scrapbook. After a few days of me coming in and this whole production of the thing coming out and being carefully unpacked by the conservator, when I arrived, they would say, Miss Stevens is here for her scrapbook. <laughs> and I loved it. I felt like, for now, it's true. I'm the only person on earth who wants to look at it this bad, so I guess it's mine. <laughs> uh, um, can I, can I uh, rise to the Edith Wharton bait with much less information? But, but just since I did bring out this incredibly beautiful oh, book yes. that she yeah, wrote, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we shouldn't move beyond this without hearing a couple uh, things that Edith Wharton wrote about houses. So um, The Decoration of Houses was published, uh, as Kate said, in 1897, co-written with Ogden Codman Jr., improbably and wonderfully named, um, a friend of hers with whom she talked a lot about houses and who helped her with this house, I think. And um, the it's like... I'm not sure I would recommend it as a read, just as like a pure read. There's like a lot of historical details about the way in which French and Italian and English houses evolved over times and the names of all of their different subrooms and stuff like that. Um, not, not uninteresting, but not like super grabby. Um, but the thing that's amazing about this book and, and that I, I think illuminates how to receive this house, which at once seems incredibly luxurious and grand, but also... Um, gracious uh, in ways that seem timeless to me 
the book is marked with so much humanity. And I think so, the, the thing I love about House of Mirth in particular is this sense of humanity within strictures, right? It's about conventions and strictures and structures and, and like the living, breathing person inside them and what they want and, and how those things sometimes keep them from getting them. And so I love something that um, uh, Warden and Codman wrote in here about curtains. And I want to read to you what she said about curtains. Um, who cannot call to mind the dreary drawing room in small townhouses, the only possible point of reunion for the family, but too often in consequence of his exquisite discomfort of no more use as a meeting place than the vestibule or the cellar? The windows in this kind of room are invariably supplied with two sets of muslin curtains, one hanging against the panes, the other fulfilling the supererogatory duty of hanging against the former. Then come the heavy stuff curtains, so draped as to cut off the upper light of the windows by day, while it is impossible to drop them at night, curtains that have thus ceased to serve the purpose for which they exist." Close to the curtains stands the inevitable lamp or jardiniere, and the wall space between the two windows, where a writing table might be put, is generally taken up by a cabinet or console, surmounted by a picture made invisible by the dark shadow of the hangings. I love the rage and the specificity. And I, in general, I love when people turn incredibly finely calibrated writing minds and pens to the... Uh, obsessive description of small practical problems, which we'll get to, I think, in our next segment. Um, but I really love that and the humanity of that and sort of saying, like, let's take all these dumb customs and stuffy draperies and throw them out the window. Like, you, there's only so much light in the room. Put the table that you're going to write your letter on next to it and uh, do away with these customs. But I will say also, and I, I love Kate's input on this, she's like a haughty rich lady also. Mm -hmm. And in the introduction, she does say... she She basically writes this book as in instruction for rich people to change their ways in favor of trickle-down good decor. And the, <laughs> and, the, and the call to arms here is, besides, if it be granted for the sake of argument that a reform in house decoration, if not necessary, is at least desirable, it must be admitted that such reform can originate only with those whose means permit of any experiments which their taste may suggest. When the rich man demands good architecture, his neighbors will get it too. The vulgarity of current decoration has its source in the indifference of the wealthy to architectural fitness. Every good molding, every carefully studied detail exacted by those who can afford to indulge their taste will in time find its way to the carpenter-built cottage. Once the right precedent is established, it costs less to follow than to oppose it. I thought that was... Uh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I have two things to say. One is that... Uh, the first time I read the book, I felt kind of bored. I, and then the second time I read it, when I was rereading it to write my book, I was looking at it as uh, two things. One, uh, an author's first book. And, and that way that when an author has her first book that she's writing, how she has so much to say, that really isn't about the issue at hand, but she's piling all of that in. And, then, and, and really, if, if you read it as a work of sociology and her ideas about America and how we live, it becomes fascinating because everything becomes a metaphor for how we live. And, and second, I have a theory that, uh, you had your theory earlier, <laughs> uh, that uh, she, she was asthmatic. And... Uh, so here she was being one of the, you know, at the, the front lines of changing the ways the rich decorated their homes, getting rid of Victorianism, which was just tons of upholstery and curtains and overstuffed furniture and throw pillows and fringes and rugs. 
And, and she was saying, clean lines, get, every, get, get rid of the curtains, get rid of all of this stuff. And I think it had something to do with the fact that she had asthma and was just allergic to all of the dust that was getting caught. And it, you know, it takes so much work to clean all of that furnishing effluvia. That's fantastic. Um, is there a place online people can look to find the information about the Mount and um, your program here at the Mount? Um, yes. So if you go to edithwharton.org is where you can find out about my interview series. And so next week I'm interviewing A.O. Scott, film critic at the Times. A uh, week after that is Katie Royfe, whose book The Violet Hour about uh, writers at the end of their lives is amazing. I just read it last week and I could not believe how good it was. I wasn't I didn't know what to expect. It's incredible. Uh, and then third is Emma Straub, whose Modern Lovers has been a big summer hit. So, uh, yeah, you can go there. Fantastic. Kate, thank you so much for coming up and talking with us. That was great. Thank you. All right, moving on. Um, there is the language that adults use with each other and the language they use with children. So writes Jesse Barron in the web magazine Real Life. Uh, she continues, he continues, she continues. I actually don't know the gender of Jesse Barron. No, we drew a different conclusion when we read it today. Uh, Jesse Barron continues uh, by saying, in linguistics, the language adults use with kids is known as child-directed or caretaker speech. Caretaker speech obeys a separate grammar from adult speech with diminutive inflections and suffixes. It might have doggy-woggy in place of dog or hammy instead of hamster. That tone, Julia, might be appropriate when you're talking to a child. Her problem is that it's becoming the default mode of speech for technology interfaces. The cutesy user interface is bad enough uh, on its own. But she argues, he argues, Jesse Barron argues, that the tone is seeping into everyday life. I feel like this is a role-playing exercise for you and me somehow. I'm supposed to like say, here, here, the world is declining. We're being trivialized in the name of hypercapitalism. Do you want me to say those things? Because <laughs> I have no opinion about it whatsoever. But if it's going to make, if it's going to give you the flint off of which to spark, I'll say it. Um, I've got a self-igniting flame over here. But uh, well, I, I think it's worth. I thought this essay was worth discussing because it puts its finger on a trend in the best way of a trend piece where you're like, oh right, that is happening. And the piece seems to have originated with Jesse Barron. Jesse Barron's rage at a set of ads for Seamless, which Seamless is a like constantly used thing in New York City, but I'm not sure how much it is used elsewhere. It is the service, the app on your phone where you tap in what you want and then people bring delivery for your to your door and your phone your credit card is charged and you never have to talk to anybody or do anything. Um it's a great service. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of you have used it, but they the shtick of it is every time you, you uh, complete an interaction, you get a little message that says something like, deliciousness is on its way, or um, like, hope your roof party is fun, we're bringing you the goods. Uh, and, and instead of just having a formal, consistent message of your order has been placed. You're, you can expect your food in 20 minutes or whatever it is. Uh, they have this faux jovial tone to the little bits of copy that interact with you, the user interface of the app. And Jesse Barron argues that this infantilized tone that assumes you're some person on a roof party or you, you, you like need to be entertained and coddled and not just said your food has order has been received and your food will be arriving soon. Um, but the, the cutesiness of it is fundamentally infantilizing. And I believe Jesse Barron posits 
by the end of the piece that this infantilization is a oligopolistic strategy of evil corporations to render us all uh, impotent in the face of their rapacious capitalism. Stipulated. <laughs> Damn, I was hoping for like a little more endorsement on your part. Um, but yeah, I'm curious if you guys have noticed the rise of this. The thing I liked most about this essay was just that it pointed out this fact that that user interfaces have gone from formal, I mean, in some ways it's like the drawing rooms we were just talking about, right? The kind of formal, professional, um, yes, I am giving you cash from the ATM machine type language to JetBlue's website saying, hi, want to buy a flight? Uh, and the various other little casualisms and uh, infantilizing tidbits of, of internet experience. Have you noticed the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think this was a, this was an on the button trend piece in the sense that when you started reading that about that phenomenon, to me, the, the the ideas kept multiplying in my mind. Oh, that's right, that company talks to me that way, and that interface interacts in that way, and it went beyond the uh, the verbal interchange that you have with various machines and corporations to the visuals. And she or he starts to talk about all these little dancing ghosts in Snapchat, right? Who are some of the other personified oh, yeah. mascots, like One, a hamster and seamless? Right, but there's so always some sort Yelp. of cute blob right. interacting. And Yelp has a like hamster called. Hammy that like dances and then shoots off in a rocket while you wait for your Yelp recommendations to load or something. Right. I should say I've never noticed any of this, but <laughs> at 3 p.m. this afternoon, it was put out on some slate thing, common thread or whatever. Just give us examples of this. And within 10 minutes, there were 50. Yeah. And you realize well, it is everywhere. There were a bunch. One of the ones I liked, uh, the, the kind of cutesy 404 page, the failure page that you get when a website doesn't load. Obviously, Twitter had the fail whale, which was this like charming little whale that told you their technology wasn't working um, for a few years, although they retired it. But there was another website someone circulated that pictured like a sad cartoon girl whose ice cream cone had fallen off, the ice cream had fallen off her cone, saying, oops, we can't seem to find the page you are looking for. Uh, and then there was a HuffPo similar 404 page that had the eyes to the sky frustration emoji, I guess. I don't know which emoji that is. The one that's like... Um, <laughs> And then the, the language was, we can't, sorry, we just can't even right now. <laughs> um, All right, so there's something, it's an, a baseline annoying, right? At least that we can agree to that. But like deepen the argument for me a little bit. It's, it's really irritating that it's imitating a kind of, you know, colloquial speech of someone that you actually know, even though, of course, it's just totally Is it the intimacy? Is it, is, the, is, is is it the presumed tr- intimacy or is it the infantilization? I did not pick this topic. I mean, is it is it it to hide the essentially completely impersonal nature of an algorithm? Is it to break down some defense on the part of the user and feel like, oh my god, this thing's kind of my friend? Like, I'll give it my social security number. Well, (laughs) the reason why somebody among the three of us might have been expected (laughs) to perceive this as sinister. Is that, it, is that it is a kind of marketing, right? It, it, what it is is the customer experience. And the, the end result that we are seeing now, the flowering of 100 cutesy 404 pages, is the result of brands moving from a real-world experience to an online experience and trying to figure out how to make an online commerce experience feel like it has a personality and a flavor and a Mm -hmm. vibe to it that makes you remember that specific outlet and use it once again. And the challenge of putting personality into a digital user experience is is really hard to do. It's hard to make good user experiences generally. 
Um, you know, and it's something we think about because obviously Slate on its many platforms is many, many user experiences, that many of which are, uh, you know, great and many of which I wish were better in various ways. And coming up with a user experience that has personality in some way uh, is valuable for online properties of all kinds that want to create a relationship with people who use them. But the, the, there's lots of ways to create that kind of personality and the cutesy messages once you've seen them when you're ordering your like fifth night of takeout in a row, not that anybody here does that, um, they're like repetitive and seem cloying mm-hmm. and you, you get the uncanny valley of like the fake friend and you just kind of want to punch them. Well, but- another, another example to me would be that airline safety videos are getting more and more try hard, right? And that every single time now there has to be like a pop song and a rap and you know, whatever, some kind of like routine, like rhymed explanation of how to buckle your seatbelt. And if you're in some period when you're taking a lot of business trips and you're just tired and you just want the plane to take off so you can land and you have to hear like the jazzy Delta song again, it's really, you can get over it very fast. Right. Even the thing that seemed great once in the conference room and everyone was like, wow, we really nailed it. We crushed those fuckers from United. Um, (laughs) Like, gets really annoying. And this is why I think good user experience designers actually don't think about the individual user experience and how Mm -hmm. cute that girl is with her ice cream cone. They think about the actual user experience, which is an ongoing experience of interacting with a brand. And what you really want is for the thing to just work, work really well and intuitively, and I think, yes, have well-written copy that is a little bit more casual and not over-formalized in the way that... um, you know, like faux corporate speeches. I mean, there's actually some of that in Idiocracy. Some of the language gets dumber and is like grunting and there's a TV show called Ow My Balls. But there's also a scene, <laughs> there's also a scene where, the, um, where the, the, the police take him, all of the citizens are tattooed in the future, but, but Owen, or sorry, Luke Wilson is not. Um, and so they take him to get tattooed and his name gets mis apprehended and he, that's how he comes to have the name not sure and the language they use as they do that is we like we must you know it is a, like our policy to take you to the utilization of the chamber of the of the uh, arm instigation you know like they, they have the kind of inflated puffy mm-hmm. formal language right. uh, of stupid corporate speak so to be against stupid corporate jargon I'm in favor of to create good user experiences I'm in favor of uh, I think it's just hard to do it well. Right. Well, I, I actually do have an example, if you can believe it. I just thought of it. It's, it's occasionally only to read the incisive analysis of Charles Pierce. I forget his middle initial, but he always goes by it. Um, yes. The, P? I think it's Charles P. Pierce. Do you guys know his stuff on Esquire about poli- American politics? On an ongoing basis, he's just... just he's great he's, he's. I mean, it, it, really, it really is kind of defensible to say that he's R. H. L. Mencken. But when you when you move your, I've noticed that now they can tell when you're moving your mouse cursor to click out of a web page, and they immediately hit you with the uh, "Don't go yet," or if you're going to go, at least like commit to us a little more. <laughs> and Esquire has this like bro persona for the oh, little yeah. thing that they say, where they're like, "Hey, do you want to hear what the 75 best movies of all time are?" <laughs> and then in in small print beneath it, they're like on the X out option is like, yeah, okay, or be an ill-educated dork, you know? <laughs> it's like kind of razzy frat bro. 
version of the, the hostile, infantilization. The but. hostile newsletter prompt is like the worst, stupidest <laughs> user experience in online media. I pledge to you, Slate users, I will never do this to you. <laughs> but the thing of like, read this story or else you're lame. They do it on women's sites too. I don't know whether the women's sites are Esquire and at first, but it's like... I, I, this happens to me and I refuse to click through. You get it before you read the story and it'll be like 20 great work outfits. And I'll be like, oh, I like work outfits. <laughs> and I'll click over and then it'll be like, you know, like sign up for our newsletter to learn how you can look sharp every day. Oh, and then, and then the, the not pick is like, or just look like your normal lame self. And I was <laughs> like, I will, thank you. No, it's y- so... Your mechanics are too obvious to me. Yeah, it's so needling. I mean, I also love the idea that my choice is between being an ill-informed dork or knowing that La Ventura is number 36 on Esquire's, <laughs> Esquire's list. Right. Okay. So we wait. wait if I, can I can I throw in one example? Oh, I'm so not exiting a, the segment. Yet, a a passive aggressive use of that kind of language, that condescending language in, in tech, is if anyone uses Freedom, the Mac software that kicks you offline when you're trying to write. I love Freedom. I believe in Freedom. Um, <laughs> and when I'm trying to block off some time, I will start this this program. But they recently had an upgrade that makes it so much more annoying because it is trying to be interactive and kind of have a little uh, symbolic character. So it used to be that when you would click into your Freedom session, you would just go. Up, pull down the menu and say start my session and once your session started you couldn't go online if you tried to you would just have a, a page that didn't come up right it was just very very simple blank now there's a little butterfly that you click mm-hmm. on because I guess it symbolizes freedom and your, your session starts and then if you forget that you're, you're, you've blocked your online access and try to get online <laughs> a sentence comes up that says to wherever you try to go say you tried to go to Google it'll say you are free from google.com <laughs> She's just like a passive-aggressive yoga teacher kind of <laughs> horrible thing. I, I really preferred it before the, the passive-aggressive butterfly. That's okay so because that software actually is kind of infantilizing, and I've used it too. Because you're like, I am a child, and I cannot stop looking at the internet. <laughs> Please be the boss of me. Like, give me a time, an internet timeout. But when it actually cops to it. Actually, it would be better if it copped to it and it was just like your fucking teacher. And it was like, no, it's not time for the internet right now because I said so. I don't want it to tell me anything. I just want it to plain old block it. I mean, when we talk about all these you know, ways to make sites more interactive and fancier, I kind of miss the simplicity of Web 1.0, like Google Reader. That was a great mm-hmm. design. Google Reader was just flat out, just blocks of text. Right? right, it didn't. It didn't have any sort of frame that it tried to make it make it fancy for you. It was just here's your reader, you know, here's your stuff. Right. No, absolutely. Okay. So th- I feel like we're not playing our respective roles well in this segment. <laughs> uh, you're you're supposed to be, you know, the champion of progress at all costs. Who by the end of the segment, your face plate falls off and revealing the <laughs> buzzing circuitry underneath. <laughs> And then you, you beg us to join the cyborg overlord. Her eyeball and, pops out on a spring. <laughs> I am the new digital interface. <laughs> and then I'm a cowering and fearful Kafka-esque loser who sees decline and sinister machinations in, you know, my shoelaces. <laughs> and then, Dana, you're the voice of equanimity and reason. <laughs> who hates yeah. passive-aggressive butterflies. Yeah. I mean, a little on the somnolent side, but, but, but very reasonable. <laughs> so walk us out of this one, Dana. We haven't played our roles at all. Do you have a piece of um, conclusive wisdom about it? Oh, my God. No, I don't. I, I feel like I need, to, I need to find sort of the, the, ultimate, the ultimate little cute 
person, to cute figure to close us out, and I don't know, I don't Clippy. know who. We need, yeah, Clippy. we have to go but, all the way back to Clippy, the Microsoft. Yeah, word guy. it's very hard to pick this up on audio alone, but Dana is actually turning into a butterfly right now. <laughs> you are free from hearing us talk about this <laughs> you're, any further. You're very free from hearing us talk about this. Okay, I, uh, the uh, article was by Jesse Barron. I thought it was very. Well written, by the way. Very smart, very incisive. Um, anyway, we'll link to it on our show page at facebook.com slash culturefest. Let us know whether you find this nettlesome or intriguing um, and uh, come to the Facebook page and tell us. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. We do, and I think I need what to read have? some facts for my endorsement. So um, I think as, as we talked about on the earlier podcast this week, we wanted to talk about the Manchurian candidate in relation to the the, the Trump-Putin moment and kind of the current political scene. We were not able to find the Manchurian candidate streaming anywhere, which is just bizarre. That is just somebody is leaving money on the table right there because that's a great movie to watch yeah, right now. And, and so we, we talked about Idiocracy instead. But there was a third movie that I, I've heard people talking about. It's sort of in the atmosphere right now, a classic movie that is... That, that is evoked by this this political moment that we're in, and it's called A Face in the Crowd. Does anybody here know that yes. that movie? Yeah. Oh, nailed it. And uh, maybe we'll find you know if this if this oh, Trump nightmare continues, maybe we'll find a way yeah. to talk about A Face in the Crowd. So it's a it's a 1957 movie. It's directed by Elia Kazan, and it stars Andy Griffith in a very different mode from the the happy overall wearing Andy Griffith that we all know from his TV show. He plays this what would you call him? He's, he's sort of a a country singer, a sort of knockabout guy. He's in prison when the movie starts and, uh, and who reveals this talent for demagoguery, essentially, for being a preacher and getting revival tents riled up over his message. And then Patricia Neal, who's wonderful in the movie, is a sort of TV producer who starts to exploit him and, and use him in almost in a way that, that recalls network. But there's a, this comes to be a scene sort of like that, where this guy has a cult following on television, but there's some sort of fringe elements drawn to him, and it starts to be violent and scary. And, uh, and he sort of starts to spiral out of the control of all these managers, these Paul Manafort-style managers who are trying to keep Andy Griffith reined in. And it gets very dark and very dystopic. Really, really smart. Great movie, A Face in the Crowd. It's a brilliant movie. And isn't his name Lonesome Roads? Lonesome Dusty Roads, I think. Or something something like that. that? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's, if we can't find the Manchurian candidate, we should definitely talk about Face in the Crowd. And people, I think there's a prophylactic effect that the name Andy Griffith has on people, you know, at the center of a serious social drama. He is so fucking good in that Yeah, movie. I feel like when great Ilya Kazan movies come up, it's on the waterfront that people talk about, yeah. and, you know, it's maybe um, Babyface, but people don't really talk about Face in the Crowd, and I think that might be because of the Andy Griffith mm-hmm. factor. You know, people yeah. say, oh, well, where's Don Knotts? You know, they picture it being this certain kind of comedy, and it's, it's not, although it's got some very funny satirical parts as well. Yeah, fantastic. Agree. Julia, what do you have? Uh, I have an endorsement that's a little bit of log rolling for Slate, but I hope you guys will allow it. We are doing a pop-up blog this month about children's literature, and you guys may be the group of people least surprised by this of anyone in the Slate audience, because I feel like culture, close Culture Gabfest listeners will have realized by the span of my endorsements over the last three and a half years since I had children that the prime form of culture that I consume is children's books, and I apply the entire apparatus that I apply to consuming the culture we talk about on the show week to week to every little figment that I read day in and day out to my children. And there is no interesting critical discussion of children's books anywhere. It's very hard to find. We did one segment once and it was so fascinating and I could do 20 a day. So we've been toying with this in Slate's culture team and uh, decided to do an entire uh, month's worth of daily posts that are grown-ups 
writing smart things about the books we read to our children and it just launched this week. I'm really excited about it. We've had a bunch of really great posts. There was a terrific piece by Ruman Alam, the novelist this week about uh, the snowy day, the wonderful uh, Jack Ezra Keats book um, about a boy, a young black boy on a snowy day. And uh, in it, he makes the great point that there's not enough books that are feature young children of color without uh, being somehow about the fact of that. And it's hard to find books that are just about imagination and not full of um, canned lessons. So I'm excited about the whole blog, um, and I would point you to it. But the specific children's book that has been ensorceling me lately and that I would like to recommend in this very gracious and um, serene setting is the most beautiful children's book uh, of all the ones that I've read, which I think is William Steig's Amos and Boris, which is this incredibly beautiful tale of uh, a mouse who sails over a sea and uh, falls out of his ship and befriends a whale. And the color palette of it is this very sort of pale aquamarine blue and this tangerine orange and white and it's very spare and there just is not a more beautiful object in all of my children's library and I love it so much. I'm not sure I will write a post to that effect but um, I'm just excited about the idea of taking children's books seriously as cultural artifacts and things to think about and revere and that is one that I like revering and thinking about. That is a terrific endorsement too. I've never heard of that book. How is that possible? (laughs) <laughs> I'm proclaimed. Uh, I've never, I've never heard of that book. How's that it's possible? It's beautiful. Steig is really, really prolific. Oh, I mean, you can Lord. read a lot of yeah. William Steig and not have read everything. And you don't wrote. always want to read a lot in a row because most of his books are about being like existentially depressed. Um, and this one's not, not one of those. But, or at least that's how I read them. There's usually like a moment of like near suicidal nihilism in the middle of any William Steig book, and then they just chortle along with their darling selves. <laughs> Um, but anyway, this one's very poetic and beautiful. Is it ensorceling? I was ensorceled. You guys can read you it. You look ensorceled. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go full uh, full Monty here, and I'm going to endorse one indie band no one's ever heard of, one Robert Frost poem no one cares about, <laughs> and one food uh, and or drink establishment that no one can go to. <laughs> Hat trick. It's a Steve Grand Slam. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Ding ding ding. Three lemons. Um, all right, so the first one, is anyone know the band The Apartments? <laughs> you do? There was one hand. Yeah. You got to clap. How fucking awesome are The Apartments? Right, Australian band from the go-between zero, blah, 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 blah. But it keeps, I somehow, I don't even remember how I found out about them. I put them on some huge playlist, and every time they pop up, I'm ensorcelled. I have to walk over <laughs> and, like, figure All out right, who retired. it is. Oh, it's, no, it's such a great word. It's... um. Uh, anyway, I love their music. The Apartments, check it out. Um, the Robert Frost poem is... Um, I, I, I wanted to honor the Berkshires with a Robert Frost poem. I have no idea whether this takes place in the Berkshires, but it's very berkshire It's called The Witch of Coas. Does anyone know that poem? It's in New Hampshire. All right, well, that screws it, screwed it up, but, um, but not too... <laughs> It's New Englandy, right? But anyway, it's it's like a traveler. I think a traveler comes to uh, um, uh, for, to spend the night in someone's house. He's I don't know, it's snowy night. He needs shelter or whatever. And this woman just begins. It's a mother and a son, and the woman begins obsessively telling the story about how 
um, essentially some ghost when she, uh, a decade ago or something, started rising up out of the basement. And it was like its bones were like dishes being kind of suspended on top of one another and clattering. And over the course of the poem, you realize that she killed her husband. And it's her husband in her own imagination. Clearly, that's not a real ghost story. It's like just in her imagination. She pictures the, the, her, her murdered husband rising up from the basement. It's a fucking amazing poem. I love it. That is and- not where you think the description of the Robert Frost poem is going to go. <laughs> Wait, what's that? I, that's not like what I... When you say I'm about to describe the plot of a Robert Frost poem to you, <laughs> no, but that is the, not what I think is going to get described. He wrote a lot of these really, really long dialogue poems that nobody reads or thinks about. I mean, if I were to go back in time and be a self-hating graduate student all over again, I might not write my thesis about Robert Frost's <laughs> dialogue poems <laughs> to go with the thesis about Thomas Hardy I already didn't write. But... Um, <laughs> I stayed the night for shelter at a farm behind the mountain with a mother and son. Two old believers, they did all the talking. That's my Robert Frost impression. <laughs> so I'm supposed to burst into applause after that. And then the final... <laughs> Fuckers. Um, and then the, uh, the eat and drink establishment you should go to is in West Stockbridge. It's my favorite coffee shop in America, tied with another one in Vermont, but they're neck and neck. <laughs> uh, it's called Depot 6, uh, started by this awesome guy. Uh, Flavio from uh, Argentina, he makes, he, he got this huge antique roaster in there, roasts his own beans, just the best coffee you've ever had. One of the best places I mean, maybe the best place in the world to sit with a laptop and nothing but two hours or three hours to while away. It's just an awesome place. Depot 6 in West Stockbridge. And that is our show. Julia, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. Dana, thank you. Thank you, Steve, as always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Oh, Andy Bowers. <laughs> Are you the chief content officer at the Panoply Network? You radiated if you're not, so you should be. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. I should say our wonderful show tonight was recorded and engineered by Darren O'Brien. Thank you so much to Darren. And thank you so much to The Mount for hosting us. That was wonderful. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, and Kate Bullock, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon.